This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, we're still thinking about John le Carré, who died last week. He wrote what people called spy novels, but they were much more than that. John Powers will comment, his critic at large, on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. But first, 2020, the year in politics. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, 2020 is certainly ending with a bang. We're speaking in the wake of Trump's amazing proposal that the COVID relief bill passed by Congress should include $2,000 for every American, not just $600. Your colleague at the prospect, David Dayen, pointed out that it's amazing that Trump didn't come up with this until after the election. If he had campaigned on $2,000 for every American, do you think he would have won? David is, as usual, correct. That would have been a, a real boost to uh, Republican prospects. But at the moment, in two separate battles, Trump is, what he's doing is he's blowing up the Republican Party because the Democrats brilliantly seized on this Trump proposal. And uh, Pelosi introduced, a, you know, a separate bill to raise the amount to 2000 bucks, which puts all of the congressional Republicans in a bind. Uh, do they go with the Democrats and Trump or <laughs> stick with what passes for their principles? Uh, similarly, Trump's insistence that the House and Senate actually have to debate and vote on ratifying the Electoral College result on January 6th, when Mitch McConnell has been uh, instructing all of his colleagues don't sign on to this and then we don't have to debate it and vote. Uh, it's quite possible, I think, that uh, there will be at least one Republican senator, perhaps the incoming somewhat intellectually challenged senator from Alabama, uh, Tommy Tuberville, who listed the three branches of government as the House, the Senate, and the President. Uh, that, uh, Tommy Tuberville will uh, go along with some far-right House members' insistence that uh, the House and Senate deliberate and vote on this, which puts Republicans in a completely no-win position. They either have to vote against Trump or they have to vote against the Constitution, basically. And either way, uh, I suspect they're going to estrange more potential Republican voters than they're going to win. So Trump really, uh, in his uh, last month, we, we don't know everything he's going to do. Clearly, his uh, nuttiness kind of rises as January 20th draws ever closer. But it, it, the one thing that's clear is that in the last month, he's about to blow up the Republican Party and good riddance. Well, it's hard to remember the time before COVID, but some of the key political event, events of the year were the Democratic primaries, which came early in the year before we knew how bad the pandemic was going to be. So return with us now to the beginning of the political season when we had high hopes for Bernie and democratic socialism and maybe even beating the Wall Street Democrats who'd been represented for decades by Joe Biden. Uh, in the end, in the end, Bernie got almost 10 million votes in the primaries. That was 26% of the total. Biden got 
52%, twice as many votes as Bernie got. Um, to me, the real, the real turning point for Bernie was Michigan. The Michigan primary, Bernie had won in 2016, but in 2020, Biden won every county. And that was kind of a sign that it was over for Bernie and democratic socialism in 2020. What, what's your analysis of what happened? Well, Bernie got off to a strong start winning uh, two of the three first contests in New Hampshire and Nevada. Uh, New Hampshire, partly you can write off to proximity to Vermont. You can't do that for Nevada. Uh, <laughs> but then he got clobbered in South Carolina where uh, a somewhat disproportionately elderly, but by no means, you know, entirely, uh, black electorate went almost uniformly uh, for Joe Biden. Uh, and then since the democratic establishment had been uh, sweating blood over the prospect of Bernie getting the nomination, then you had a string of centrist candidates dropping out just in the next couple of days because Super Tuesday was only, uh, three days after the South Carolina primary, which occurred on a, on a Saturday. And so Pete Buttigieg dropped out and endorsed uh, Biden and Amy Klobuchar dropped out and endorsed Biden and Beto O'Rourke, who had already dropped out, endorsed Biden. And Biden kind of swept the board, except for California, uh, on Super Tuesday. And at that point, most of the other candidates, including Elizabeth Warren, dropped out. And when it was a choice of two candidates, uh, which it was for a while, uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, the, I think, main motivation for most Democratic voters, including a number of people who thought of themselves as on the left, was who has a better chance to beat Donald Trump? Because after all, Donald Trump is sort of a neo-fascist. And uh, most of those folks, including, as you pointed out, most of those folks in Michigan, decided it was Joe Biden. And that marked uh, effectively the end of uh, Bernie Sanders' candidacy. Now, it's, it's kind of become a, a trope now, but it's true. On policy, on what Democrats actually believed, I think Bernie more or less won the day. Um, if you looked at the exit polls in virtually every Democratic primary, a majority of Democrats said they supported Medicare for all, which was, of course, Bernie's position, not Biden's position. But that wasn't the primary consideration, clearly, for most Democratic voters. It was who can get, get the country to get the hell rid of Donald Trump. And thus, Joe Biden uh, won, won the nomination. The next big thing that happened in 2020 was Black Lives Matter in the streets in the summer this was millions of people in hundreds of cities in towns uh, after George Floyd was murdered by the police in Minneapolis on Memorial Day weekend. This was turned out to be the biggest protest movement in American history. It certainly changed a lot of things, especially here in L.A. where we record our show. L.A. then went on to elect a progressive district attorney for the largest department in the country. And the, the city and county both cut their budgets for the police and sheriffs and shifted money to other social programs. Uh, what's your assessment of the political effects of the Black Lives Matter protests? Oh, they're profound. 
for one thing, it not only broke ground by the, its sheer size, but it broke down because uh, it was uh, represented in its ranks were, were people of all, Americans of all races uh, in large numbers, more so even than in the legendary civil rights movement where uh, liberal whites obviously uh, strongly supported the civil rights movement. This was, this was really huge. And, and it, it, by the way, it's, it's particularly reflected among the young, uh, which is a, a generation which has pretty much had it in many ways with uh, the doctrine of white supremacy. So it, 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 was, it was huge, it was diverse, and as you yourself have, have pointed out, John, it, it was a movement with political smarts in, in California, in Los Angeles, and in other places. This was a movement that was able to make the usually difficult transition from basically being a street movement to being a movement that was street, but also electoral political, uh, electing uh, reform DAs, not just in LA, but in a number of cities, uh, and I think really compelling the nation on several levels, a political level, intellectual level, and, and so on, to uh, have more of a reckoning with the effects, ongoing uh, uh, pervasive effects of white supremacy and white racism than it ever has before. So these are, these are profound achievements. They're achievements that came with a backlash. Look, there's a lot of the current Republican Party and the Trump movement I think is probably more upset by this than just about anything else. And so uh, not surprisingly, this is still the fundamental division uh, in America as it has been since 1619. Well, then, then of course, came Election Day. And first, I want to talk about what did not happen on Election Day. A lot of our friends were worried, scared, terrified that there would be armed militias, neo-fascist, right-wing, white nationalist militias in the streets on election day. There was fear that there would be, might, Trump might organize a military coup. Rosa Brooks did this war game thing that concluded there was no way to avoid some kind of first steps towards a civil war. Uh, um, Bart Gelman said, you know, if you thought the 2000 uh, Supreme Court case was something, there's going to be 10 or 20 of them going to the Supreme Court. None of that happened. It was a sort of a more or less normal election day, except that more people voted than, than, than ever before. Uh, and then we were told there's a whole bunch of new things to be afraid of. The state legislatures will reject the votes of the of the people. The courts will take up uh, all the challenges. The legislatures didn't and the courts didn't. Even the Republican-dominated legislatures and courts. So what happened to all the alarmist warnings and predictions from so many of our friends on the left? Well, um we, we, we may be jumping the gun just a little. There was a little story in uh, my morning's Washington Post local section, so you would not have seen this, which said that, you know, the same groups that have mobilized in D.C. for Trump uh, in uh, over the past couple of months, including the Proud Boys, that they have gotten a permit for a rally on January 6th, which is the day that uh, Congress will uh, ratify the uh, Electoral College's vote. I think this will be a day of angry people in the streets. And I think, given the whole 
perverse situation we're, we're, we're now in, their anger will actually mainly be directed at Mitch McConnell and Republicans <laughs> yes. who do not support uh, the Trump uh, utterly spur spurious challenge to uh, uh, the election of Joe Biden. Uh, so we're not out of the woods yet, but the woods are, are lovely, dark and deep. <laughs> and, uh, some of their targets, you know, would have been unthinkable a couple of months ago. And I just point out that there have been two previous demonstrations by the Proud Boys in DCs. The second one had fewer people than the first. They were noisy, they were obnoxious. They did stab a few people. The police arrested a couple of dozen of them. They burned some Black Lives Matter banners that were on uh, a series of black churches in DC. And they also denounced Fox News for using the term president-elect referring to, uh, to Biden. Yeah, well, like I said, uh, you know, I mean, the sort of, if you step back, it may be that the amazing result of all this idiocy coming from Trump, what he's doing is doing his damnedest to kind of split the Republican Party, uh, which has basically been going along with him. But, you know, as, uh, you know, Republican judges, the Republicans who administer elections have gotten off that uh, train. And, you know, uh, if it's a question of overturning the Electoral College, there are Republican senators in particular who are going to get off the train. So uh, this is very interesting. So the election itself, biggest turnout in history, biggest vote for the president in history, biggest margin of winning for the in history, Biden beat Trump by 7 million votes. The rest of the news is not so good. Maybe you've heard Democrats didn't win control of the Senate. They lost a lot of ground in the House. We've had, you know, more than a month now to figure out what went wrong. What do you figure? Well, uh, partly this is uh, a reflection of the fact that uh, popular majorities don't necessarily translate under the American electoral system to legislative majorities. Uh, I mean, the Senate is our primordial gerrymander, uh, in which Wyoming has the same number of senators as California, even though California has 70, 70 times more people than Wyoming. And, it, you know, the, the, the Democrats won the popular vote when you total all of the votes for the House of Representatives. But Democrats are clustered in cities. Uh, so Democrats there get 80% of the vote and Republicans in the exurbs and rural areas don't have to do that well, but elect more, de more delegates. I mean, and that said, yeah, the Democratic message uh, to uh, the white working class has not really stressed um, you know, a, a kind of economic populism that in theory could resonate there. Uh, in practice, there is so much crap that uh, deluges uh, the white working class on right-wing radio and right-wing television and right-wing social media that it's actually, you know, hard to conceive uh, what actually would break what has become one of the kinds of tribal alliances and tribal allegiances that we, uh, we uh, the country is now subject to. And one last thing, we haven't talked about the pandemic. By far the big, <laughs> you know, it's big, it's big. Democrats thought 
Trump's disastrous failure on the response to COVID-19 would be the end of him. I certainly thought so, but in the end, he got more votes than the last time, more votes than anyone in American history, except for Joe Biden. So the story seems to be that the pandemic did not hurt Trump, or at least not very much. Could that be true? Uh, it could be true. Um, and in particular, and perhaps until the current wave came around, and maybe even despite even that, uh, the economic closure of a lot of American business and a lot of American employment uh, directly affected more people than the coronavirus. And this was, again, something that the Democrats hadn't really anticipated, that we hadn't anticipated, and hadn't really crafted, you know, what exactly to say about it. But I mean, even if they had, this was a problem that was not easily dispelled. And I think Trump clearly got a lot of votes uh, because people thought he would open up the economy before Joe Biden would. Uh, of course, there's a third player in that game, and that's called uh, the coronavirus, <laughs> yeah. uh, which, which, which has more power in these matters uh, than anything except, uh, you know, the vaccines, which are finally now being distributed. Mike Davis has an interesting argument on, uh, on this score. Uh, he says that Biden should not have let Trump argue for, in quotes, the economy, uh, while he, Biden, argued that public health should come first. He should have combined the two and argued rightly that the only way to truly restore the economy is by beating the virus, by starting with protecting essential workers with the right kind of PPE, the right kind of labor law enforcement, the right kind of health policies for the workplace, and that that would protect them and then all the rest of us and get us truly back to the jobs that we need. I wonder what you think of that critique of Biden. Biden occasionally made noises in that direction, but by no means was it a central theme of his campaign. And as is very often the case, Mike Davis is right. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. Harold Meyerson, read them at prospect.org. Harold, it's been great having you on the show today. Uh, great to be here, and I got to go. I got promises to keep. <laughs> we have to pause here for a brief word. We still need help in finding a new name for our show. Remember that on Wednesday, January 20th at noon, Chief Justice John Roberts will swear in Joe Biden as president, and we won't need to watch Trump anymore. So what should we call our show starting January 20th at noon? Thanks to everybody who sent in ideas, but unfortunately, some of the good ones have already been taken by other podcasts. Give me some truth. Great name. It's already an investment advice podcast. Give me some truth this week about annuities. Or how about Heard It on the Grapevine? That's already a podcast about wine. Grapevine, get it? Or how about A Day in the Life? That's already a podcast where each episode is about what it's like to work in a different job. Or maybe Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow? I like that one but it's already a podcast with three hosts from three different generations talking about life. So we still need a new name for Trump Watch, and time is running out. Please help. Send your ideas to new.trumpwatch at gmail.com. 
That's new.trumpwatch at gmail.com. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. We're still thinking about John Le Carre, who died last week. He was 89 and one of the greats, author of a couple of dozen books that people called spy novels, although they were much more than that. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he's heard on more than 600 NPR stations with 5 million listeners, plus millions of more on the Fresh Air podcast. We reached him today at home in Pasadena. John, welcome back. Oh, nice to be here, John. Well, what was your introduction to John Le Carre? Okay, well, I was 12 years old and a lover of James Bond. I thought he was the acme of sophistication. And I was not necessarily wrong to have thought that because John F. Kennedy seemed to think that he was the acme of sophistication as well. And I loved them because, you know, it had the beautiful women who were who you could do anything you wanted with and you, you, even kill them afterwards if necessary. And, you, you know, you, you were flying off to exotic places and doing fun stuff. And I, and I was loving them and praising them. And my my friend Paul Allen's brother was just back from his first year at Harvard and he gave me a copy of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and said, here's the real thing, kid, <laughs> putting me in my place. And then, I, and then what was interesting was I didn't like it, you know, because I, I was 12 years old. And, you know, and when you're 12 years old, John le Carre is too sophisticated. I mean, I, mean, I even now I talk to people who say that they tried to read le Carre and they find the plots too complicated. Yeah. But nevertheless, I mean, for a 12-year-old, he was just too much. Yeah, well, you know, I remember reading for the first time The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. I was not 12 years old. I was much older. And, you know, the whole story centers around the Berlin Wall. And I have to say, it had the most devastating ending of any book I've read before or since, I think. I mean, it's it's really different from what most adventure stories are like. Maybe we start with the fact that it, when, like, maybe Le Carre's great theme is betrayal. And so this is a, a, a thing where a man, you know, where the hero, Lemus, pretends to be betraying the Secret Service by, by moving over to the other side of the Berlin Wall in order to betray somebody. And in the process of this, he winds up you know, betraying a woman also. You know, I mean, he doesn't know he's betraying it, but there are all these levels with betrayal within betrayal within betrayal, which is, which is the Le Carre thing. But it is the one that has, has genuine power at the end. And pop culture stuff usually has a little pop, which, you know, that's why it's called pop. You know, so it, it, it it's the pop of pop culture. But Le Carre actually had genuine emotion, and this was he created a world, and you were inside it, and then it was so dark, and it's, it's the quintessential Berlin Wall story, I think. Well, it was clear from the from the very beginning of Le Carre in Spy Who Came In from the Cold that he did not buy into the prevailing Cold War ideology. Spies were not heroes. 
we were not the good guys in a worldwide struggle defending freedom against tyranny. Our side was full of, as you say, hypocrisy, betrayal, stupidity. And the spies on the other side, we come to learn in his other novels, especially Carla, were sort of like us. And his conclusion was pretty clear. In fact, he wrote in the new introduction to his classic work, Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy, that uh, pretty much everything the MI6 and the CIA did were useless or worse. Quote, they would have done much less damage to their countries, moral and financial, if they had simply been disbanded, close quote. But it wasn't really his ideology that made him a great writer. It was his characters, his plots, his sentences, and especially his unforgettable, what should we call him, alter ego, George Smiley. Yes. Well, I mean, George Smiley is probably the greatest of all spy spy heroes, probably because he's gray. And he's all-knowing, except for the fact that he, 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 he's so all-knowing that he knows his wife's constantly cheating on him, but not, but not powerful enough to be able to stop it. He is the person who is infinitely patient, who goes through details, who is a sieve for all sorts of information, whose affect tends to be neutral but kind, and yet who in the course of the novels does all sorts of unkind thing to people costing them their lives in some cases because of the things he's doing in a rather bland way. But he's brilliant and we identify with him. And we identify with him because he's the seeker after the information. And and we we join him in the search for the information. And because the search for the information is fascinating, we somehow impute to him a fascination that he may not have. He is in, in many ways such a human character, partly because he's not spectacular in any way, but he's exceedingly good at his job. I mean, you could imagine him in another life being the world's greatest actuary or, or insurance investigator or something. But, but in the spy context, he's spectacular, but he's without being spectacular. And the task that he is given in the greatest smiley book, Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy, is to find the mole. Apparently, this was a term that Le Carre himself invented, and this was one of Le Carre's sort of enduring preoccupations, the double agent. He knew about Kim Philby, the great mole in MI6, sort of the inspiration for this book, and he said what's fascinating to him about the mole is that he has to do this balancing act. He has to be the best person working for his ostensible employer. He has to have triumphs that make him notable and honored. But at the same time, he has to do his job for his real employer, which is to undermine and destroy everything he has worked on for his ostensible employer. It's a complicated situation, and it's one that Le Carre and Smiley were obsessed with. Oh, yes. Well, no, I mean, it, I mean, it is the, it, it is the great obsession you know, and it, of the, I mean, the double agent is, in fact, I think it's such a powerful notion because we feel that probably in our daily lives, we're surrounded by people who, are, who may not be working in the direction they seem to be, people who aren't wholly committed to the prospect at hand. Anyone who's ever felt betrayed has thought, oh, this, this person has smiled and gone along with being my friend, and they weren't. So you take that kind of ordinary thing and then you expand it into geopolitical and bureaucratic terms. 
you know, and one of, and one of the great things about about the about the smiley search for for the mole is that it takes you inside the bureaucratic workings of of the spy business. And Lacare was great at creating a world with its own terminology. I mean, mole is is the most famous. You know, but he has like his lamp lighters. You know, and he he makes you feel that you're in this entire thing that's been so densely imagined. And then you're picking your way through and there are rules and, and regulations and there are people you've been working with for years. And then you have people who know the lore. I mean, it, it's all brilliantly conceived that Smiley is gradually, you know, trying to work his way through. And it's really exciting when you finally get there. Um, and Tinker Taylor even has one of the great endings of who the spy is with the spy's explanation of how he got away with it, which, which I would never reveal to people. But... <laughs> His explanation for how he got away with it is so great that you realize that in addition to all of his other virtues, Lakari is one of the great plotters. You don't get to have 20 bestsellers if you, if you aren't telling stories that are sophisticated and complicated. If you're going to be doing what he's doing, the plots have to be really good, and they are really good. The twists are really good. I mean, Spike came from the Gold offers the first great twist, but a lot of them have it. The follow-up to Tinker Tailor Smiley's People also has, you know, great plot twists. And you're catching, you know, people's weaknesses are revealed in interesting ways. Um, I, mean, he's, I mean, he's really good at all of that. Then there's another of his most famous books, which is not a Smiley story, which is, has sort of the opposite of Smiley. His character Magnus Pym who's the central figure in A Perfect Spy, 1986. Magnus Pym is supremely confident, charming, winning. Women love him. We admire him. And I noticed Philip Roth called A Perfect Spy the best English novel since the war, which is kind of an astounding thing to say about any book. But uh, A Perfect Spy, actually, there is a secret to A Perfect Spy. What is it? Oh, yeah. Well, the secret is that, you know, that the hero of it is the son of a confidence man and criminal, a kind of larger than life, almost Dickensian crook. And in fact, Jean Le Carre, you know, David, his father, Ronnie Cornwall, was that man. You know, the, a perfect spy is, the, is basically Le Carre telling the story of his own childhood with, with the charming confidence man who is a crook, who's ripping people off but who's so good at he's a, actually able to run for parliament as, 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 a, as a confidence man, and who puts the young Le Carre to work doing some of his dastardly work, you know, ch- helping to cheat people, helping to not pay bills in places. I mean, Le Carre actually was kind of the, the servant as a young man of this confidence man, which leads to both A Perfect Spy being a terrific book, but also leads, I think, to his sense of not trusting anybody. I mean, he's very good at seeing things like spy agents as confidence games themselves. You know, so it's like when he's saying that, that the spy people didn't really accomplish anything, but they're, they're able to convince people they accomplish things. And, and you can imagine with that kind of background, with your father as a con man who's been using you, how it makes you skeptical of everything. But he has a lot of the dad skills as well. Because the, the dad being a, a, a rogue, but Lakari was a famous mimic. And one of the things in his writing is 
He does voices probably better than anybody since Dickens. You hear the people talking. He can he can give you the drawl of an aristocratic person in the in the foreign ministry. But his working class people actually don't sound like stage working class people. They sound like working class people because he had a fantastic ear. And I think this was probably part of being being surrounded by all that and like listening to people and learning how to work them and the whole thing. After the Berlin Wall fell, after the end of the Cold War, people said, poor old Le Carre, he's run out of material. They've taken his wall away. And the New York Times obit said, uh, quote, if Mr. Le Carre painted his Cold War world in shades of gray, his subsequent book seemed increasingly black and white. This is a criticism. And I kind of think the conventional view is, yeah, he went downhill when he lost his great subject. I wonder if you agree with that. He didn't go downhill. I, I, I think he did have a great subject. And, he, and part of the greatness of the subject was that readers liked reading about that subject. And so sudden, suddenly his spy agency wasn't quite the same and the language was different. So you kind of felt cheated of your imaginary world. The books are up and down. Some of them are more black and white. I think in particular the ones after September 11th, there was a hatred for American spies and what America was doing that skewed things for several years. I mean, he was just angry about it. And I think what was curious was he never seemed he never seemed angry in that way about the Cold War stuff. He probably got a little bit older and got a little bit crankier. His disapproval of what was going on in the Cold War with, with the spy agencies was less ideological than his criticisms of the spy agencies later. That said, a bunch of the books are really, really good. Even some of the bad ones have great plots. You know, they keep you going. You know, I mean, you know, the night manager is is the closest he ever came to writing a James Bond book, I think. You know, with the supervillain arms dealer and the hero who actually gets in fights and does all that sort of stuff and has the beautiful woman. That's the closest. But it's still a terrifically good book and became a terrifically good TV show. A lot of people say our kind of traitor in 2010 was his return to form. Yes, no, it was return to form. But you know, but along the way, even you know, when you when he was doing the Little Drummer Girl, which I remember not liking so much when I'd read it at the time, probably because I felt cheated of Smiley and all the rest. The Little Drummer Girl is a good book, and it's it is so complicated because you know Lakari was a lover of Israel. And yet he didn't dislike the Palestinians at all. I mean, and they're, they're very, their situation is very sympathetically represented, partly because also he was a researcher. And it, by that point, he was so famous that, you know, if you're, if you're I mean, Lakari is one of the few people who actually could just like have, could have terrorist type people say, oh, sure, we'll tell you about what we do. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's not an, and that's not a call you and I can make. You, you, you know, you can't actually get Mossad people to tell you stuff they do just because they like your book so much. You know, but, but he got that, you know, and, you know, I, the constant gardener actually is, you know, is an interesting thing about drug companies. You know, he wrote interesting th- books about interesting things. He wrote about the banking, about bankers and, and their dealings. He wrote about, about Russian oligarchs. He wrote about the Congo. You know, I mean, he was interested in lots of places, you know, and not all of the books are equally good, but not all of the Cold War books are equally good. Writers are allowed to write lesser books along the way. I mean, I, I you know, I, I mean, it was very funny how he and, you know, Lakari and Rushdie had a huge falling out. 
And Lakari was was on the wrong side of like defending Rushdie, partly because Rushdie had panned one of his books, I think. Hmm. Um, you know, but but in fact, as much as I've liked Rushdie over the years, I would rather have John Lacare than, than than Salman Rushdie. I think he actually says more about the world that's interesting to me than Rushdie does. One last thing that I especially appreciate about John Lacare, and that is his reluctance to do interviews to promote his books. He said talking about his own books uh, was, quote, making bird noises. <laughs> and since you and I are in the business of being on the radio, we we know what he means. Oh, oh we, we do know. And, and, and what's also, what's so funny about it is when you hear him interviewed, you know, he has a lovely voice. You know, he speaks incredibly well. His bird noises would be spectacularly <laughs> marvelous raconteur. And, and the thing is, I, along the way, I, I know some literary critic types have said that, like, his sentences aren't as great as so-and-so. I mean, I think, I think he's an incredibly good writer. You know, line by line, I think no one who's written popular fiction probably has ever been a better writer than John le Carré. I once was asked by somebody what was I thought was the greatest English novel. And I thought, I wasn't sure, I thought, you know, I, I, it would change with me, and like, To the Lighthouse might be it. <laughs> yes. But if you ask me the one I liked best, if I'm being honest, it's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's my favorite English novel. And, I'm, and I think that it's as good as almost everything that people might say is better. John Powers, critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. John, thanks for talking with us about John Le Carré today. I'm very happy to do it. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.